All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 this morning with the Lord's help. Let's pray. Father, help us now. We're before your word, still our hearts, even from the small distractions that were just mentioned, Lord. Take those away. Let your word become dominant in our eyes and our mind. Cause our ears to hear what your spirit says through his word. We pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Peter writes, Beloved, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. D. Edmund Hebert says this, True holiness is not procured by the application of a compelling external authority, but rather by awakening and strengthening the personal desire and will of those being appealed to. In other words, you cannot force by external pressure and rules and systems personal holiness. Rather, that must come from and be awakened in the individual believer as they desire and conform their will to the very thing God is calling them to. And in these two verses, the Apostle Peter is bridging a gap. He has already given us one set of practical exhortations for the Christian life. He then gives the interlude and speaks of Christ, the cornerstone, and as we as being the chosen cornerstones built upon Him. And now He is about to prepare us to embark upon a second set of very practical exhortations. Now, I want you to notice that the first one out of the box is verse 13, where he will talk about submitting ourselves to every human institution, not necessarily an easy thing to do. Submission is something that none of our human will is naturally adapted to. We don't enjoy that. And so Peter prepares us with a a why, if you will. You know, that's one thing, parents, as we raise our children, it's important not only to tell them, what they should do, how to help them think, but why they're doing that. That's important. Otherwise, it's just external pressure trying to conform them without a a real heart explanation as to the importance of what we're calling them to. And Peter's doing the same thing here. These are going to be tough truths to swallow. These are going to be difficult life experiences to deal with. And so he gives us the why here in verses 11 and 12, as he bridges the gap between one set of applicatory truths to the next. It's not just what we believe that matters, Peter will say. It is how we apply those beliefs. It's not just how you talk, it is how you walk that matters. And Peter is calling us, to right beliefs, followed by right application of those beliefs. It is a living defense of our faith. It is creating a platform from which we can be and 
must be heard with a compelling message. It is not just an intellectual defense of the faith, it is a living defense. Brothers and sisters, ultimately, our lives before a lost and unbelieving world will impact them. Hear what I say, your life matters. How you live matters because it will, as Peter says, impact the world around them. That is why it does so much damage to the cause of Christ when individuals who claim to follow Christ fall away from the faith or find themselves admired in immorality or other types of scandal and controversy. It's not just their life that's affected. It is the lives of the world around them. Ultimately, our lives do matter to a lost and dying world. We will impact them one way or the other. Without reservation, Peter says, this will happen if we apply our faith. If we apply our faith. It is conditional. Saying you're a Christian... Letting your neighbor see you get up on Sunday morning and go to church does not matter if you do not apply the things that you hear here. The things that you understand from here have to be applied. The things that you take in must be adapted into your life. And so, like any effective plan, our lives and responses need to be mapped out. We need to prepare for this. We need to rehearse these things before they come about so that we are able to apply the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let me ask you this question, Christian. What will you do? What will you do, Christian, as you live in a world that is hostile to your God? How will you live? How will you live in a world that is hostile to your faith and seeks to cancel your faith, and to silence your faith, what will you do? Have you practiced? Have you rehearsed? Have you thought through those things? You must. You must. Peter says, your life matters, beloved. And so I want to simply this morning look at cause and effect for our lives as Christians. Here's the sobering reality, brothers and sisters. Your life will be the cause of a certain effect on those who know and observe you. There will be an impact. There will be an effect. We we do not live neutral lives. Today actually matters. How you respond today will matter. Nicole, years ago, got me a little plaque that sits on my desk. And it simply says this. Today is not a dress rehearsal. It's real. It's live. And it will have an impact. First of all, look at the cause as Peter begins in verse 11. He says this, Beloved. This is a term that finds no equal usage in secular Greek writings. In other words, the only place that we find this precious word of endearment and love and concern and familial context to it is here in the scriptures Peter, my loved ones my family the the ones that i give my life for he calls upon them 
He calls upon them, begging them to, as a related brother to consider what he is about to say. Now, all of us, we, we've labored and we pray that our lives will have a positive impact on the world around us, that the gospel would go out not only in power, but in effectiveness. And that has to be our hope. That has to be our goal. But it's not just enough to say, yeah, you know, um, I hope that the gospel and I hope that the truth of Jesus Christ will be used through my life. And then to stop there. It's like saying, you know, someday I hope I go to Disney World. You don't just hope and hope and then someday end up at the destination. You have to plan for it. You have to save for it. You have to actually make reservations for it. You have to execute something. And that is what Peter's doing here. He's saying this has to move beyond a goal or a hope that the, the gospel will conquer and reign and have effect. You, you've got to apply some things, church, in order for that to happen. It's especially hard to maintain that type of heading of just hoping it happens and thinking it will happen and saying, yes, on paper, that's my goal, when the world seems to be lining up against us. That doesn't last very long. It doesn't go very far. It won't endure the storms. It won't stay faithful and persevere under persecution. Peter's saying, listen, that is where these Christians are. and They must respond appropriately. We, we may have the temptation, church, to want to fade into the background, to just not rock the boat, to go unnoticed, to, as recent legislation says, do no harm. Or to experience no harm is more like it on our part. We, we don't want the trouble. We don't want the, the, the kickback and the blowback from that. We may, we may want to cloister away and hunker down so as to simply live out our days in as much relative peace as possible. And Peter is saying, that's not why you're here. You're not here to compromise or to hide away. You are here to be salt and light. Do we believe what Jesus said? You're to be a city that is set on a hill whose light can't be hidden. You're to be salt that can't be denied. Do, do we really believe, brothers and sisters, that God has an elect remnant that He will continue to save? There are people, Jesus says in John 11, who will be saved. Do we really believe that? Even in the midst of hard times? Hey, listen. Historically, the church and the gospel has flourished in hard times. And so we could literally say as the day gets darker around us, this is our best life now. This is a time for the gospel to shine. Are we great commissioned people or not? Make up your mind today. You either are or you are not. And if you are, it's no longer sufficient to say, well, I hope, well, I believe in, well, I support. It is that we must say, now I must do. I must gird up the loose flowing robes so that they are no longer distracting. I must take on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit, which is truth. And to take the fight 
to the enemy, to Satan, to the kingdom of darkness, and to penetrate that with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we believe that the gospel is and always will be the power of God unto salvation? If we do, and I pray that we do, then Peter has instruction for us. Peter wants a word with us. I want you to notice something interesting that goes back to that opening quote here. Notice as you look at the text, there is no imperative verb. Peter does not say, okay, do this. Rather, it is a summons that has the same force as an imperative command. In other words, I can't force you to live this way, but I am begging you so strongly that it has the same internal compulsion as if I commanded you to do something. It is begging of the first order. Peter is pleading with these Christians. He is pleading by proxy with us this morning. It must be your conviction. It must come from within you to hear and to respond to what Peter is saying. Oh, beloved. Oh, family. Oh, kinfolk. Hear what I'm saying. I care deeply for you. And so I exhort you. I urge you. I beg you. When we say urge in our day, we we think of someone just giving a, a little nudge. You know, call the number on the screen. I urge you. No, this is stronger than that. It is a deep pleading. It's begging us to hear what he says. What does Peter hope to accomplish? What Peter hopes to accomplish here is to awaken within them a response that's based on their conviction. What do you really believe? If you really believe it, you'll act on it. If you really believe it, you'll do this. And so he begs them pleads with them. The Holy Spirit who now indwells them has taught them. They know the truth. They have a conscience that's alive and awakened and able to be persuaded by the internal workings of the Spirit. And Peter is simply appealing to that. And that's the controlling action of both of these verses. Is this strong appeal and this dependence upon the Holy Spirit who has, if He has saved them that they will naturally desire to respond. I want you to notice how Peter moves on through the verse. He begins by reminding them, and hey, hey, by the way, reminding us of our status in this world. And he does so with two words that capture our reality. Would you look at them? He says, I urge you, I beg you, as aliens and strangers, say, well, Peter, it's the same thing. Peter's just trying to make a point, so he's being redundant. And and that may appear to be the case, but it's not actually the case. For the word alien is a descriptor of our person. We are the persons who are in a strange land. We are the people who are in a place that is not our home and is not our own, and upon which, by the way, we have no claims. You realize that? You don't have any claims here. Nothing in this world actually belongs to you. It doesn't matter what the Central Appraisal District says on your tax bill every year. That doesn't actually belong to you. This is not your home. And so he he is reminding them and equipping them for what he needs to tell them by saying, hey, listen, before you get too 
engrossed in this life, just remember, this isn't your home. Therefore, you can hold on to it very loosely. You don't, you don't have to have white knuckle syndrome with what I'm about to call you to do. If we strive to make this our home, and we know this, don't we? If we strive to make this our home, if we strive to give this life the familiarity and security that only heaven will bring, and that's part of our problem, let's be honest. We want life here to provide what only heaven will provide. And so we make concessions and compromises in order to try to help it feel like home. Peter says it's not supposed to feel like home. You're strangers in a strange land. We live in a land not our own. We don't share the common values of a fallen world, the customs, the language, the behaviors. They're all different. By the way, Christian, that's a good thing. We should never be comfortable with the world's values and customs and behavior and language. Look around. Look around at the cesspool that sin has bred in this world and say, is that my home? Is that really where I belong? Am I entertained by the things that Jesus had to die to forgive? That certainly seems incongruous with what Peter is saying here. This isn't your home. It's not that we don't understand it. We get it. We get it, but we get it as a system that cannot be adopted by the believer. It's not our, it's not our home. It doesn't fit us. Maybe it did, but it doesn't now. And then he goes on and he says, not only are you aliens, your person itself is a stranger, but you are a stranger. And, and this word is meant to emphasize not so much the characteristics of the person, but the emphasis here is on the duration. This world is not your home and you will not be here very long, is what Peter is saying. It is a short duration that you have to endure here. You are simply passing through. It's not simply foreign to us. It is fleeting to us. It's not going to last long. Some of you are older than I am. And I used to think it strange to hear, boy, time sure does go fast. My parents say it all the time. And you know, now in my mid-40s, I'm starting to say, man, time sure does go fast. I can, I can remember what seems like literally a couple of years ago, there were two babies in our church. One of them turned 17 tomorrow. What? Where did the time go? I remember when she was one. Sorry, Kaylee. And my son soon follows her. Where does time go? All to, to, to make the point, Peter says, this is a fleeting life. It doesn't last very long. Even at its longest, it doesn't last very long. Now, I, you read through Genesis, 969 years. Now, we got something to work with. That's a long time. But today, 70, 80, 90, 100, boy, it goes fast. And that Peter says that's the point. And, and the more that you realize, Christian, that 
that it is such a short time, the less you will be affected by it, the less you will be tempted to invest so heavily in it and to cling to it. And so Peter says, not only are you strange, but your time is short. You need to be aware of those things. And in both of these ways, Peter begins to peel our fingers off of this world. So that we're not holding on to it so tightly. So we're holding it biblically and very loosely like Moses would have prayed in Psalm 90. Lord, teach me to number my days so that I might gain a heart of wisdom. Show me how short life is, Lord, so that I live wisely because today matters. How I live today matters. You'll be less devastated by the actions and reactions of the world to you, Christian, if you will maintain these headings. One commentator says, as long as we are in this world, our lives as Christians should display a certain detachment. The problem with the church today is that it has become overly attached, not increasingly detached from the world. We've adopted so much about the world we don't even realize it. And so Peter's trying to wake us up. It's not that we don't care. It's more that we don't capitulate. Peter says it's not that you don't care about the world. It's that you don't capitulate to the world. That is Peter's concern as evidence now in the, the remainder of this verse. Don't capitulate to the world. This isn't your home. And so he, he gives them these exhortations. Notice as Hebert points out what Peter doesn't do. Peter does not give our otherness, our strangeness, our foreignness as a motivation to be escapist. The apologist James White, if you don't listen to him, you should. Alpha and Omega Ministries, the dividing line is very helpful. But he said, there's two kinds of Christians in the world today. There are escapists. And there's endurantists. I think he made the word up. Are you just simply hoping to escape? Or are you here to endure for the cause of Christ and the glory of the gospel? Which mold do you fit? And Hebert says this is not a, an excuse for us to be different so that we can be escapist and withdraw from the world, but rather as a motive to be holy while we're here in this world. And let our daily conduct show that. And so Peter gives some exhortation here. The first is negative and then he moves to a positive. He says, abstain from. That is to hold off of. Get away from fleshly lusts. As Christians, we are not to give in to the fleshly lusts that are tied to your base and depraved nature, which John tells us is passing away. There's coming a day when your fleshly lust will no longer live, but as a Christian you will. Therefore, why do you play with something that's dying? Nobody goes to the morgue to play. That's John's very blunt point. Quit playing with that which is dead. Start focusing on what is living and true and alive, and that is God's work in us and putting to death those things that are already going to die, go ahead and finish them off. Abstain from them. Don't feed them. 
The power of what is being warned against is that these desires are not found out of us, but inside of us, Christian. It's not just the world. We can't blame the world for everything. The problem is also here. Well, yeah, you know, Hollywood's so corrupt. Yeah, and so is my heart. So is your heart. Yeah, but you know, this is so wicked and so bad. Yeah, that's true. But therefore, the grace of God, we would go. We too can fall. We too can be tempted. We too have those seeds of depravity in us. And so we must be very, very careful and put those things off. It's easier to resist the carnal temptations of when they're offered by the world. But what do we do when it comes to our own flesh? That's harder to see. And it's harder to be honest about, isn't it? But Peter says you've got you've to get away from those too. You've got to guard yourself against those. There are right ways and wrong ways of fulfilling certain desires. and To give in to them in a sinful way is to discredit our redeemed alien status. Peter says you give in. You don't look like a stranger, an alien, a pilgrim anymore. You look like them. And they're dying. You're no different. They won't listen. So, Guard your life. Your life matters. So how do we identify which of these desires is to be avoided? How do you know when a desire is wrong? Peter gives us the answer. Notice what he says. These fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Can you do it and it not wage war against your soul? Then okay. But if it's going to wage war against the soul and the mind that is redeemed and war against the things of Christ, then that is what I'm talking about. That must be put away, abstained from. Hebrew again is helpful in defining these lusts as those lusts which constitute an army of soldiers engaged in constant warfare against the soul, aimed at capturing the believer and making him useless to God. You can't do that. You, you can't... You can't go there. Paul says, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not just beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Do the desires that you're being tempted with, they may be good, they may be bad. How do you know? Well, are they going to wage war against the soul? Are they going to contradict what Christ has died for and saved you from? It's the battle Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. And therefore, we must be on guard. Peter says, brothers and sisters, my my dear loved ones, the ones I care about more than anything, I urge you as people who don't really belong here, and while you're here, you won't be here very long, please Walk away from, abstain from lusts that come from the flesh that do spiritual detriment to your life. That are inconsistent with the gospel for which Jesus gave His life. They are inconsistent with a redeemed child. You know what the world needs? Do you know what the world needs? Your your lost loved ones that you care so deeply about, that you pray for. Your neighbors that you care about. Do you know what they need? They need Christians who don't seek common ground of compromise. 
They need to see Christians who stand on the battleground in their own war with sin arising from within themselves and not giving in. That's what they need to see. They need to see you battling sin. As the Puritan John Owen said, you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Mortify your flesh. The order shows, says one, that personal holiness is basic to social righteousness. If you want the world to see outwardly the image of Christ formed in you, then you be concerned about your own personal holiness. So concerned that I don't have to tell you everything that's right and wrong. You so desire to know what is right and wrong that you'll find it out and you'll seek it out and you'll follow God. The great Scots preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who died in his late 20s, literally preached himself to death. Was so concerned. I've been reading his memoirs and letters that he wrote to people. Robert Murray McShane was consumed with his own personal holiness. He said this, How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Christian, remember, you are God's sword, His instrument. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be its success. When we allow fleshly lust to leave that rust mark, it will eventually grow until it eats through the entire saber. Robert Murray McShane says, be on guard. Be concerned about these. Love putting that off. Cleaning the saber, if you will, of your life's testimony. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Christian, discipline your life. To neglect the power of of God, the weapon of God wrought holiness in your own life is to make you neither happy nor effective in this life if you are truly a Christian. And that's the catch 22. Satan sells it to us and says, listen, if you'll just give in to your flesh, if you'll just give in, if you'll just live for yourself, if you'll just adapt the, the modality of the world, you'll be happy. Oh, and by the way, they'll listen to you more if you live like them. You're you're, you're winning them through lifestyle evangelism. Adapt their lifestyle. Adapt their verbiage. Adapt their lingo. And you'll be so much more effective in reaching them. No, you won't. You'll neither be happy nor effective. You'll be miserable because you'll know that you've grieved God and your neighbors will not see enough difference in you to give you one second of an audience. They're the same as we are. Christianity is just another club. Rather than the life-transforming power of a resurrected Savior. Oh, brothers and sisters, we've got to take this seriously. Notice what Peter goes on to say. He says, guard your conduct. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. The word literally could be translated pagan or Gentile, either one. 
But he says, not only put off things, but put on things. Live honorably, on the other hand. On the, there's a negative emphasis. Now let me give you a positive emphasis. And it's literally worded this way. Having kept your way of life or conduct honorable. I'm just going to assume as a Christian, this is what you'll do. You've already done this. This is who you are. If you are a believer, if you are my beloved, you will have wanted to do this and will have engaged down the road of doing this. Not saying you're perfect in it, but you're at least taking steps toward it. It's true that these believers and all believers start well, but it's the battle ahead that causes Peter to write what he does. Persevere and continue, Christian, in whatever small obedience you've held on to. Do you feel like you've created and taken steps to obey the Lord in something that He's put on your heart or convicted you about? Do you feel like maybe you've made some small step, but it's not a great step and you're discouraged because maybe other people you know seem to be taking greater steps? Do you find yourself discouraged in that and just saying, well, why bother? You know, I started out my Bible reading plan really well the first week of 2021 and then I felt, so why bother? I'm just not going to read it. I look at all those box marks that are unchecked and I printed it out, it's laying there. No, no, no. Just continue to grow in small obedience, small steps, small things that they might continue to grow. Don't be discouraged. Don't quit. Persevere in them. Don't say, well, I failed today. I might as well just give in to everything. No. Peter says, keep working towards it. Persevere in it. It may be small to you, But if it's obedience rooted in faith, it'll grow. Don't worry. Keep pushing. The same is true in the opposite direction. The enemies who wage war on our soul, when given one victory, will quickly pursue another. There's no coasting. There's no neutrality. So we must do the same. One step of obedience must lead to the next step of obedience, to the next step of obedience. One commentator says, these small steps deepen the spirit, the resolve, one way or the other. We must pursue God in these things. But notice the effect. Verse 12. What happens? What happens, Peter, when we are committed as these strange people here for a short time? When we're committed to these things that our life matters. Notice the purpose. So that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers. Oh, are you ready for this? The good things you're doing. The positive steps of obedience to God that you are taking. So that when they slander you as evildoers for doing what is good. Oh, we're starting to see how that looks like, aren't we? You speak the truth, you're an evildoer. You're a hateful person. You're a bigot. You're intolerant. No. We're faithful. But but notice what Peter says. In the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds. It's really they will because of your good deeds. As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And I know what you're all doing. You're all mentally crossing your arms and going, yeah, I don't see it. I don't see all the things on the the horizon in our world today. They will ever glorify God. They hate God. 
And you're right, they do. But there's something to what Peter is saying here. It's an interesting idea. The holiness of the believer should be so total and growing that out of those things mentioned previously, when they accuse us of those things, it's actually finding lodging in their minds. It's actually affecting them. Notice something interesting here in the text. Would you look at it? Notice it is not the whole of our conduct, Peter's speaking of, but it's the things out of our conduct, in the thing in which they slander. It's one thing. It doesn't even have to be the whole life. Peter's just saying they'll pick one small thing. There, there is literally so much of our life that is so committed to holiness, so committed to biblical obedience, that we can't even be accused of it all. They just pick one small thing. Is our obedience that great? Is there enough obedience that they could choose something out of our obedience rather than the whole of our obedience? Does that make sense? There's so much that they could just point anywhere. And Here's the thing. Yeah, they're evildoers. How convicting. Most Christians today are so consumed with how much like the world we are that we don't even give this a thought. Here's the really convicting thing. There's, most Christians are so much like the world today, there is nothing to convict them of in which the world would say, you're an evildoer. Jesus says, count it all joy. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why are you thinking this is a bad thing? At least there's enough that you can, they can see this. Brace yourself, though. They're going to see your holiness as evil. Of course they are. Their God says it is. The idea is that it's enough evidence and their accusation is a call for judicial action. That the word, this, as I was studying this this week, I'm going, this good grief. This is so much where we are. It's a judicial term Peter uses. When they call it evil, the word is actually from from the, the world in his day, it was a call to judicial prosecution. That's how bad this gets. They want to prosecute the Christian because there is so much in them that contradicts their God of darkness and death that they will say, they need to be put into prison for this. That's how intense this is going to get. Their depravity is such that you will be accused of being selfish, base in your behavior, hateful, simply because you war against your own sin. Now listen to that. that that's another key component. We are not at war against them. We are just saying we're fighting it in our own lives, and that is what they will get mad about. I don't want to go to the temple of Diana and Artemis because of all the temple prostitution and the immorality. I don't want to be part of that. You're hateful. No, I said I don't want to. Yeah, but you're intolerant. I said I don't want to go. Yeah, but you can't say that. It convicts them. As one historian noted, Christians were especially accused by Gentiles in three arenas because they just said, look, I can't do that. I can't participate in that. The realm of the political... They were called enemies of the state because they refused to join the cult of Caesar. In the religious state, they were 
called evil because they refused to participate in immorality of the pagan cults. Third, ethically they were called evil because they introduced new customs that were, listen to this, they were viewed as immoral by not taking part in what actually was immoral. Woe to you when men call good evil and evil good. This is where these people live. That's where we live. Let that sink in. Let Isaiah 5.20 sink in. They substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And they say you're evil. The same historian also goes on to note that this often occurred at the goading of religious people. Brothers and sisters, there is a movement afoot within the broader evangelical church that I can promise you this will be the first ones to pick up stones against anyone who lives faithfully to the Scripture. It is already there. We're unloving. We're unkind. We refuse to use preferred pronouns. We refuse all... No, we are not hateful. We simply say, I can't do that. Suetonius, a first century historian of Nero, wrote that the emperor inflicted punishment on Christians, quote, as a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Sounds like Jesus was right in Matthew 5. So how do we respond? How do we respond? You've already heard the answer. Keep holding. Keep your behavior excellent. Don't give in. Don't give up. There will be no end to their accusation. And so this seems to be circular, unhelpful reasoning. Thanks a lot, Peter. No hope. But that's not at all what he says. Notice the end of the verse. We're closing. He says, do this so that as they observe what you're doing, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. I don't know about you. I don't see a lot of people on the news just excited and anxious to glorify God. Anybody else? They're not saying, no, where do you wonderful Christians all go to church that we may join you in worship on Sunday? And what do they do? They're, they're shutting down Twitter. They're canceling. They're blocking. They're doing everything they can. But Peter says, trust me, in the day of visitation, they will glorify God. Peter, do you, are you insane? Look at what they're doing. The word visitation carries two meanings. One, it can mean a visitation where someone would come to bless, to bestow honor or reward. It could also mean the day in which the judge comes to inflict the sentence, to judge for wrongdoing. It can mean either. And so we have to look at this and we say, well, which definition should we choose in this context? Which is it, Peter? Let me be political for a moment. Yes. Yes, let, let, let me just appease anyone, everyone. Yes, it's both. 
You see, Jesus says, just after talking about persecution, says the same thing in Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But they don't like my good works and they don't want to glorify God. But Jesus says that's what's going to happen. Do it! So how do we reconcile those two meanings? It may be that some who persecute you in the end will turn to believe your message. Think about the Roman centurion who crucified Jesus. What was his final conclusion? Surely, this man is the Son of God. Didn't make what Jesus was going through any less or any easier, but he saw the proof. And he gave glory to God by calling Jesus who he... The Jews wouldn't do it. The religious people wouldn't do it. But this one pagan centurion says, this man is the Son of God. He confessed more than every rabbi in Israel by simply looking at Jesus' life. Church history is full of examples that there are those who lit the fires to to burn our forebears at the stake who later repented of their own sins. Having watched them suffer for Jesus well. And so it may be that on the day of visitation, there will be those like the Indians in Peru, who killed Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, who come running to Jesus later. They murdered them for their faith, and yet in the end, so many in that tribe ended up coming to faith because of the witness of those they persecuted. It may be, it may be that your worst enemy greets you in heaven someday. And says, thank you for being true to your call. But if not, they will still glorify God. Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and those in the hell under the earth. And they will all bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. They will glorify Him. So whether it is in life or in death, by our testimony, God somehow in His miraculous grace... He doesn't have to have us, but He chooses to do it this way. Through your life, through your faithful life, your enemies will stand with either out excuse or stand with repentance on that day and glorify your God because of your life. Is that sobering enough to compel you to say, okay, Peter, you've got my attention. I understand you can't scare me pressure me or force me to actually comply with holiness in the inner man you might change me a little bit on the outward man as long as you're looking but as soon as you turn around i'm back but knowing those things that he concludes with oh how it ought to stir our souls 
And say, you know what? I don't need anybody to watch me or tell me. I have a desire to please God in all things so that my enemies will glorify Him in some way on that day. It will happen. Christian, one way or the other, your life matters. How, you're, how you live your life matters. God will use it in the end to glorify Himself one way or the other. Even though now, I don't see it. But by the eyes of faith, I see it. I take God at His Word and so I believe it. I can't, nor can anyone else, force you to live in this way. It must be your decision. But let what Peter says have an impact upon you to motivate you. To seriously consider what he says that it might drive you to say, you know, there's something to how I live. May it be honoring to God. May it be honoring to God because Christ has so changed me by giving Himself for me. Let's pray.